Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. I've walked through Yungshiwan on Lama Island so many times, but never stopped to think what lay beneath my feet. Bits of pottery, kilns, quartz jewellery and other items dating back up to 6,000 years. Archaeologists Mikatha and Kenneth Yip researched the back beach of Sharpo village on Lama. Their research tells the story of people at different times who would come in dugout boats to fish or forage to make jewellery or bream their boats. They're the co-authors of the book of their research, piecing together Sharpo, Archaeological Investigations and Landscape Reconstruction. MacArthur told me about some of their finds and the work of Father Daniel Finn in the 1930s. Here we are on uh, Main Street in uh, Yungshuan. So this would have been the top of the Qing Dynasty shoreline. And everything that we see in front of us is actually built over the top of the beach after that period. So as, as we turn round and walk inland up Back Street, walking towards Hongxingye, which is a beach that many people would know about, coming to Lama Island, going for a swim or walking on to Sokowan. We're walking, in some senses, back in time, because we're walking up towards the back beach. At present, we're walking over areas which would have developed in the Qing Dynasty, maybe into the Ming. But as we go further, we'll be walking up onto the area that was occupied by the Six Dynasties to Tang back beach, which is of 5th to 10th century AD, that kind of period. And in this area we found the remains of several kiln structures dating from that period, and we think these are relating to salt production, boiling concentrated brine to make salt. Just, just in front of us is a, a blank piece of concrete, but back in 2009 we discovered um, a structure which we have described as a working floor. It's a fired clay structure with a slightly cambered surface and we think that was in some way related to the industry. And it's only a few metres away from a further kiln structure which we found also under the pathway when we were doing watching briefs which is where, as archaeologists, we're monitoring the work of the construction team seeing if they find anything interesting and of course we found two significant uh, kind of more than a thousand year old structures in this area. Being an archaeologist in Hong Kong is a sort of mixed bag. I mean, on the one hand, you're describing to me areas that are completely built up, covered in tarmac. Mm. Um, but at the same time, the fact that everything gets ripped up regularly, I would have thought, gives you a bit of fodder. There is an interesting relationship between development and discovery as far as archaeologists go. Development, of course, impacts upon buried archaeological resources, but because of the legislation we have in Hong Kong that means that there has to be some kind of archaeological inspection or excavation of some sort in areas where we think or know there might be archaeological potential, we then get to go in and have a look. In the pathways in Yungshuan, we have repeated removal of the concrete and repair or insertion of new utilities and the utilities just like everywhere else in the world they don't talk to each other and they don't all go and dig holes at the same time they come back and dig up what was just put back in maybe six months ago so there's a great deal of disturbance of the upper layers so you'll find maybe prehistoric from say three or four thousand years ago mixed with very recent Qing materials all mixed together in the pipe trench backfill but beneath that we can still find in situ undisturbed archaeological deposits right throughout this kind of core area of Sharpo and the back beach. So what's the oldest thing that you found? Um, the oldest materials we've found in this kind of Sharpo area dates back to the Middle Neolithic, to the early stage of the Middle Neolithic, so around six, six and a half thousand years ago. So that's quite ancient. And this is red painted pottery of a kind that is found all over south, of the coast of South China uh, and all throughout Hong Kong. And this seems to be a, a cultural kind of trait which is widely evidenced. Uh, and we, when we find this stuff, we know we've got this early stage of the Middle Neolithic. And this is soft clay pottery used for 
consumption wares, so bowls and cups for consuming food. The coarse wares we find with it are very gritty, uh, coarse material with uh, incised or paddle stamp decoration, and that's used for cooking. So we find the cooking wares and the consumption wares, and this pattern is consistent throughout prehistory. So already 6,500 years ago, you're able to, from finding these artefacts, envisage the kind of community that might have been here? Well, certainly the, the scattering of material from that period is actually quite thin. So we think we're only dealing with fairly small-scale communities, maybe one or two extended families, potentially pulling up on the shoreline with their dugout canoes. Whether they had outriggers or whether they were double canoes, we don't know because the wood doesn't survive. We don't find the boats, but we find coastal sites all over Hong Kong that tell us these people must have been out using boats to travel around. We also find uh, deep-sea fish boats, fish hooks and things like that that tell us that they were a maritime-focused people. But small-scale, in the Middle Neolithic, we think we're dealing with quite egalitarian, probably, small-scale communities travelling around with a fairly mobile uh, maritime existence. Early fish hooks were made of what? Well, early fish hooks, the, the, the first ones we find are from the Bronze Age, which is quite a bit later, and those are made from bronze, of course. And when's the Bronze Age? The Bronze Age comes in around 3,500 years ago, uh, around so 1500 BC, and that is widely evidenced in Chapeau. In fact, it's, it's one of the most interesting periods uh, from this particular site. If we go back to the mid-Neolithic period, so 6,000, 6,500 years ago, when you're describing this red pottery, is the redness from the clay and then it would have been fired up? The clay, yeah, the clay itself, the body of the, the pots can be quite pinkish or uh, reddish in colour, um, but the red is, is from paint. So they're making some kind of pigment. I'm not sure exactly what that is, maybe red ochre, something iron oxide-based and that is then painted on and then fired. So it's, it actually survives quite well it, all, over all the thousands of years. When you first started looking around the Charpeau area, um, were you just coming in for the first time, or has there been a lot of archaeologists working pre-you? This is one of the main reasons we decided to try and get the funding to do the research and write the book, because Charpeau, like many sites in Hong Kong, which are in areas which are experiencing development, and change have been looked at by many different people on many different occasions in many small-scale excavations and much of that information tends not to be published there will be a report written and that will be sent to the AMO and be in the library at the Heritage Discovery Centre in Kowloon Park. So the Antiquities and Monuments Office? Yeah exactly so we have to produce a report and every piece of work that's been done should have a report relating to it whether that's unpublished so-called grey literature report or something that might be published as a short summary. So the Archaeological Society was very active in the Sharpo area from the sort of 70s, 80s into the early 90s, doing research-focused excavations. After that, we're going into then the development-funded so-called contract archaeology period, where the developments are occurring as a result of infrastructural improvements, such as a sewage improvement scheme that led to my work in 2008 and 10 with Kenneth, my wife, and co-author. So... So there are many different stages to the work and we also have, of course, the small house development system in Hong Kong and those small house developments that happen in these sensitive archaeological areas are all dealt with by the Antiquities and Monuments Office themselves. So they have their own excavation team and they deal with those excavations. So we have a number of discrete house plots that have been excavated on the back beach and on the plateau site, which is just behind us. And of course, if we go right back 80 years or more, we're back to the time of Father Daniel Finn, who was active in Lama Island, most famously relating to the Taiwan site just down the coast from here, about 15 minutes walk away. But he also wandered over the plateau at Sha Po 
which was heavily terraced in the Qing dynasty and found massive evidence for Bronze Age quartz ornament manufacture, uh, which is still evidence today when anybody digs in that area. Yes, isn't that fascinating? He came across as jewellery sort of manufacturing, so quartz earrings. Mm. I mean, th this was... At that time, Finn was, and like all the other archaeologists, Finn was unaware of the Back Beach site because at that time it was under the village of Charpeau. The fields around were under cultivation and archaeology was not that visible on the surface. But the plateau site was terraced in kind of one and a half metre high, huge terraces going down the hillside to create an area where they could grow vegetables. And he wandered around over there and found all sorts of uh, materials on the surface relating to the whole process of ornament manufacture. So white discs, the blanks, that they used before they started actually drilling out the core of the earrings. Semi-finished semi earrings, he found the tools for polishing them and sawing them. So clearly evidence for a workshop-type industry, uh, rather than something to, uh, on a casual, kind of more domestic level of production. That's fascinating. Now, Daniel Finn was a Jesuit priest. He was, yeah, Irish Jesuit, who came here in the early 30s, I think, and met with Joseph Shelshire and Heanley, who were two of the kind of early pioneers, and they knew he had a history of classics. He was a great scholar, was Finn, and they kind of encouraged him to get involved in the archaeology, and eventually he finished up doing the work at Taiwan. Stumbling over the archaeology, walking along the quayside in Aberdeen, near where the Jesuit priests were based, and saw a pile of sand full of prehistoric material. Asked the fisher folk, the people unloading the junk, where this material had come from, and he said, kind of over there, or Taiwan, Taiwan To. So he went to Taiwan To, Taiwan Beach, and found that they were actually quarrying the archaeological site for the sand to develop Hong Kong. So here we have a very early example of development impacting archaeology, but also bringing it to light. So this is something I talk to my students about and say this, this is a long, this process has a long history in Hong Kong of development having a relationship with archaeology and discoveries. So Finn was involved in that at a very early stage. Isn't that incredible that he sees some sand offloaded from a junk over in Aberdeen? And uh, what did he discover in there? Some sort of Neolithic... Uh, uh, bronze Age material. Yeah. I think most it was pottery, and he also found some broken bronze implements there as well. But given his classical background, he kind of knew what he was looking at, and so he was very keen to then find out where this stuff had come from and go and investigate further. And that's a very fortuitous co coincidence, I think. Mm. Now, Father Finn worked here on Lama, and uh, you've, uh, in your book you've got uh, various photographs of him at work. But poor man died at the age of 50. Last year would have been a 130-year anniversary of his birth and the 80th anniversary of his death. But he provided, certainly for you, some sort of archaeological foundations. He did, and some of the work he did was actually really special. He was a great scholar of numerous disciplines, a great sinologist, and with his classical background, he was deeply fascinated in the materials that were turning up in Hong Kong and how they related to the wider Chinese culture in prehistory in particular. And he made some very interesting connections in terms of the so-called double F Bronze Age pottery which he identified which has two kind of back-to-back -back interlocking what look like Fs which are clearly not Fs of course but that's what it looks like. So he identified this kind of pottery realised it was a key kind of we would say type fossil of the Bronze Age but he also came up with some very interesting ideas about how these ornaments that we find on the plateau behind us were made. And we used some of his description of his hypothesis about how that process might have worked in the book because he still has useful and valuable things to tell us, even after all these years. So a very inspirational figure in terms of kick-starting some of the early aspects of Hong Kong archaeology. When you're operating as an archaeologist, do you just get excited about the artefact itself or building onto uh, how these 
earlier humans would have lived? Well, my background is in landscape archaeology, which is a very strong kind of sub-discipline of archaeology in the UK where I trained. So that's something I brought with me to Hong Kong and found that landscape was something that people really didn't use as a way of kind of visualising and reconstructing the past. And so for the book, I was very keen to try and take these artefacts, these individual discoveries in these disparate areas across the, the whole plateau and back beach and try and reconstruct them together, put them back together uh, and rebuild how the landscape might have looked and how that might have uh, related to people through time. So this is the, the reason we chose the, the title for the book, Piecing Together Charpeau, Archaeological Investigation, Landscape Reconstruction, is reflecting that process that we have all these many small-scale, in many cases, excavations, which if you look at the findings individually and the artefacts individually, it doesn't mean that much. You can say this is a, a site which has evidence for the Bronze Age, say. But it's only when you actually start to aggregate up the evidence from all across the area that you realise you've actually got evidence for a whole cultural landscape. So that was really the kind of motivation, in particular in the Bronze Age. We have a back beach site down, lower down near the shoreline, and this plateau we're now walking up in contemporary occupation. But people are doing different things in those two areas. So this is telling us we've got a whole landscape, that people are moving across and doing different things at different times, which of course is deeply interesting. So we've just um, headed up off the, uh, what would you say, the main drag of Yung Shuan? That, yeah, we just walked up off Back Street, which is the main, uh, the main path towards uh, Hong Sing Ye and Sokowan. And we've just taken a, a left turn up the hill, which is why we're breathing slightly heavily now. <laughs> <laughs> and what we have here is now an area that's been substantially developed with village houses, but each of these village house plots has been excavated by uh, the government archaeologists, and in the one on our left just here, they found a really nice site with lots of Bronze Age evidence and post holes. Evidence for post-built structures. Post holes? Yeah, post holes. So this is where, when people build a timber house, they will dig cylindrical holes in the ground, stand a post up, and then ram stones down the side to make the post stand up. That's the basis for your structure. We think maybe something with suspended floors, so the kind of stilt house structure because we have no evidence for ground-level surfaces where, which are being trampled or used, or fireplaces. So, in essence, the buildings in Tayo, would they give any kind of comparison? Well, I mean, they're still houses, yes. I mean, that's a similar kind of idea. This form of construction, I think, is quite widespread in Southeast Asia. This is generally what people think houses were probably like in many parts of ancient Hong Kong. There is evidence for one or two kind of ground-level structures, but the majority, we think, were probably stilt structures. Now, what these kind of structures were like very difficult. One of the games that archaeologists love to play when they find post holes is join, join the dots and try and work out what the house might have, or structure might have looked like. This is very difficult. We have three house plot sites, each of which across this area surrounding us have post holes in of Bronze Age date. So we have structures up here and it seems to be associated with this quartz ornament workshop. So are these the shelters being used by the people running this, uh, this workshop? Fascinating, but also uh, hugely frustrating at times, I'd have thought. Well, we're always dealing with fragments. You know, we're always trying to piece together remains that are always a, a sample of something bigger that, and we don't really know what the parent kind of size of the site would have been originally because we only get to look where the development actually occurs. If there would be, there isn't actually much more space up here for more development, but if there are further developments, the, there will no doubt be further excavations and we might find other fragments from antiquity, as John Barrett from Sheffield University once said, which is a great title for a book, <laughs> Fragments from Antiquity. Um, he was basically saying that what we're looking for is that all these fragments that we find, we, we can take them as evidence for 
cultural, cultural practices. So we find these different bits and pieces, we put them together, and we try and reconstruct what was happening. Now we have postals across this whole hillside, so that's suggesting that there is something fairly widespread going on up here, and that is clearly spatially associated with this quartz ornament manufacture. And they seem to be producing, based on Finn's evidence and based on what's been found more recently, they seem to be producing more of these things than they could consume in the local community, which is interesting in that it suggests evidence for trade and exchange, suggests maybe a degree of craft specialization by the Bronze Age as well, so societies may be changing and becoming more competitive. People are more concerned about display, so they want more of these shiny, white shiny earrings and other things to show off their bling, you could say. <laughs> so this is not a new thing. You know, today we get the latest iPhone. Back then, maybe you had to have the latest set of nice, shiny white earrings. So in piecing together Shao Po, you've got the back beach that we've just passed. And uh, so here we're heading up to the plateau. Mm. Yeah, this is a, a piece of raised ground. It's not usually high, but it's interesting in that it provides, for one thing, maybe surveillance. It gives a degree of security in terms of being up and being able to see across the sea in, in quite a wide area. So there may be some connections like that, although we don't see any kind of defensive structures relating to what is happening up here. It seems to be more domestic and craft working, whereas down on the back beach we're seeing different things occurring. And up here, this is uh, an area where they would have been doing rice and vegetables, or is that later? Up here, they, w the evidence for agriculture is really dating much more recently uh, than that. So in front of us we have a large earthen bank that is one of what was a series of about maybe 20 or 30 huge terraces that were cut into the hillside by Qing Dynasty farmers. So in the low-lying uh, valleys behind us, behind the back beach, paddy fields, wet rice agriculture. On the hillsides, dry terraces with sweet potatoes, papaya, maize, peanuts, other crops such as that. So the vegetables were grown on the hillsides, the rice was grown in the valley. But this is in the Qing Dynasty. In terms of what people were subsisting on in the Bronze Age and earlier in prehistory, we have no evidence that these people are farmers. They may be doing some form of uh, plant manipulation, as was evidenced at Shaha, where they found some indications of cultivation of gourd. And so there are suggestions that there's some form of plant exploitation going on. But mainly we're looking at people who are uh, we, for whom we have evidence of fishing and hunting. So we have evidence for large deer, wild boar, large pelagic fish, deep sea fish, which they're obviously going out in their boats and catching. You can't get these fish in immediate coastal waters. But the starch intake for these people, the carbohydrate, we still understand very poorly in Hong Kong prehistory. Although we do have some very good clues from a site to the west of the Pearl River called Shinkun, where they did analysis of stone tools and recovered from the, the small pores in the face of stone tools lots of evidence for starch grains and phytoliths these are tiny silica bodies from plants which survived for thousands of years and these showed that people were exploiting palms systematically exploiting palms and very little evidence for any exploitation for example of rice and maybe gathering wild rice so this is very interesting because people need carbohydrate people must have been eating lots of plants but of course over the thousands of years with our acidic soils we have in Hong Kong, just like the boats that we obviously don't find, we also don't find the organic materials that relate to their diet. Now it's gone on the compost of history. <laughs> exactly, exactly. With the quartz, when you were saying about the, the quartz jewellery that would have been made, so is that just cut out of rock? We've recently excavated a site also on Lama Island, Kenneth and I, uh, with some friends from the Archaeological Society at Pak Hok Choi, which is the very northern tip of Lama Island. And there we found evidence for what we think is quartz quarrying. 
there were lots of chips of quartz and fragments of very nice pure white quartz all the, across the top of a headland. So that suggests that maybe they're looking for these seams of quartz which occur as bands through the local volcanic rocks, the granites in particular. So they would identify where these seams of quartz were and then go in and quarry that material, knock it into the rough shape they require and then bring it to these workshop areas and then work it up into the finished objects. These items of quartz, they go to the Antiquities and Monuments Office? Do they go into some filing cabinet? Well, everything that is excavated in Hong Kong becomes the property of the government upon uh, its exposure, basically, from the ground. So that's the legislation. All excavated artefacts are the property of the government. However, they do allow archaeologists a reasonable amount of time to study them, um, to record them, and to write reports about them before they are then sent into the repository. And if they're considered to be nice enough and shiny enough, they may go on display in the Heritage Discovery Centre Museum or the Museum of History or one of these other museums that the government runs in Hong Kong. Do you think it would be interesting here in Yongshiwan to, well, A, have something about the archaeology of the area, um, but also to recreate some of the, you know, either pottery or quartz <laughs> jewellery-making techniques? That would be very nice, I mean, because Lama is basically one big archaeological site, and this Yongshiwan kind of Shapo area is very rich. There's a lot of archaeology here. They are actually talking about, at the moment, of redeveloping the library in Yongshuan uh, and incorporating some kind of heritage display in that new building, which will be excellent, because it would be really nice to have some of the materials, or at least reproductions of some of the materials and some of the activities that people are doing on site, so that when people visit the area, they can actually also find out a bit more about the kind of more ancient past, rather than just going for their... Uh, seafood meal and experiencing a much more kind of recent touristic kind of experience of Lama. There is also this very deep and interesting historical dimension as well. When you look at uh, Lama, of course, as you say, it's, it's rich in archaeology. Uh, also, Penny's Bay on Lantau has also been a, a great find. But um, in terms of Lama itself, are there reasons why Neolithic or Bronze Age people would have had a preference for Lama? Was it an easy place to get fresh water? Well, it's an interesting question. I mean, the islands in particular, the outlying islands, seem to have been really heavily exploited by Neolithic and Bronze Age people. So we're talking about Lantau and Lama in particular. The location is interesting, I guess, in terms of people who have a very strong maritime focus. They seem to like seafood. <laughs> so there's some continuities there in terms of uh, the area. Um, so they're into fishing. They're into marine resources. They go hunting. We have good perennial water supplies in many bays in Lama, as we do in Lantau as well, so everybody needs water, so that is also an interest. These back beach sites in particular are a major focus of prehistoric activity. Uh, they can pull the boats up, they can go on the back beach, they can set their fireplace up, do some cooking, process a few stone tools, and generally kind of hang out there and do their kind of daily domestic activities. But then the plateau site, they're doing something different. But the back beaches are a major focus the maritime lifeway. They're, they're travelling around the coast. So these island sites around Lama are probably in good locations to strike out to exploit certain fish resources at certain times of the year, maybe. And it just seems like when, when the sea is the centre of your universe, islands are a, an obvious place to base yourself, even if it's only fairly temporarily. Although we do find archaeological sites, of course, all the way around the coast of the NT as well. Uh, but I think the, the, that's the reason the islands are probably a major focus because they're, they're seen as being pit stops, you could say, in the middle of a world that for them is very maritime-focused.
sometimes you'll find pottery, but what did they eat with? Well, this is an interesting question. We, we, we have lots of evidence for ceramics. That ceramics is the thing that we always find masses and masses of. We also find the stone tools, things like adzes for chopping bamboo and wood and for shaping wooden implements. Um, but ceramics is the main thing we find. When we find waterlogged sites, which we have not yet found in Hong Kong, but when waterlogged sites are found, such as Hamudu uh, in eastern mainland China, there they had a very good waterlogged sequence of deposits. And, of course, they found masses of organic materials, weaving shuttles, paddles, uh, the handles that the adzes were fastened to, surviving still um the so that's like a little axe is it yeah it's like a yeah it's it basically but it's mounted horizontally rather than vertically so it's just and that's used for chopping and shaping wood which is the standard kind of cutting tool of prehistoric south china and we find the stone head of those objects all over the place but of course we don't find the handles in places like amudu they found the wooden handles beautifully shaped and stepped to take that stone tool at the top um so if we were ever to find a waterlogged site in hong kong we might be able to significantly add to our understanding of not only the the implements they use for uh, food gathering and processing and hunting, but also the things they may have eaten with, wooden bowls, wooden cups, bamboo objects, spoons even. Did they use spoons? We actually don't know. What are the benefits of a waterlogged site then? Well, waterlogging means that if the site has stayed wet since it was formed in prehistory, then that has kept the oxygen out, particularly if the site has got a muddy kind of anaerobic condition in other words no oxygen if you have no oxygen you have no microorganisms no microorganisms means that the organic materials will survive very well the only places i can think in terms of hong kong prehistoric sites such as Shapo, that that might occur is in the former lagoon areas at the back of the back beaches and those are areas we tend not to go looking as archaeologists because we generally think well people aren't going to be living there but we perhaps really should be having a dig into those edges, uh, the interface between the back beach and the wetland, because in those areas it's, there is the potential for some organic materials to survive. You've been describing the, the, the challenge and benefits of the relationship between um, Hong Kong's development and its archaeology. But also there is the, uh, one of the uh, a main challenge for sort of maritime archaeology here is the silt. The Pearl River Delta brings down billions, I guess, or certainly millions of tons of sediment every year. And so for the western side of Hong Kong, and probably into the, into the harbour as well, this is bringing in a, a, a significant deposition of, of silt. When the iron wreck of the World War II ship uh, Tamar was found in the harbour two years ago, it was under six metres of sediment. And that's since 1941. Six metres since 1941. That is an incredible rate of deposition. So for the western side of Hong Kong, in terms of maritime archaeology, it's actually quite difficult to find shipwrecks because of that build-up on the seabed. If we go f further east towards uh, the kind of Saikung area of Hong Kong and out on that more rocky oceanic side of Hong Kong, then there we don't have quite the same problems and we stand a much better chance of finding evidence for shipwrecks. And the Maritime Museum recently has pulled up a, f a couple of cannons and has found other evidence for ceramics on the seabed at Town Island. So this material is down there and it has the potential to be more easily discovered in the eastern part of Hong Kong than the west. Because around here there should be a whole bunch of shipwrecks, shouldn't there? Well, if you think about the history, of even the recent history of Hong Kong, um, it's, it was on the Maritime Silk Road. Um, 
for example, the site of Penny's Bay you mentioned earlier. Penny's Bay seems to reflect the cargo of a trading vessel, potentially, bringing this blue and white ceramic. Why it finished up getting dumped at Penny's Bay, we don't really know, but it may be piracy or some other means that they actually considered the blue and white porcelain something they weren't actually interested in. They took the other uh, goodies that they considered more valuable and just dumped the ceramics, maybe. Um, but there must have been huge numbers of ships plying the waters all the way through Hong Kong Harbour, all the way around the coastline, and then coming from the west up the coast of Lantau Island and then heading, heading up into the Pearl River uh, into the Pearl River so to go to Guangzhou, which of course even from the Tang Dynasty was a, an important trading port uh, with a resident Arab Muslim population even a thousand years ago. My thanks to archaeologist Mick Ather, co-author of Piecing Together Sharpo, Archaeological Investigations and Landscape Reconstruction. Next week, Mick tells me about the threat of pirates and how lime was used as a waterproofing agent. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.